Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. First World War is a problematically large topic. There are dozens of ways to frame the discussion. The battles, the tactics used, the home front, the casualties, all so big that it's hard to keep them relatable. But at the heart of all those huge numbers is one small one. Four. Four years. All of it happened in the time it takes to, for example, complete high school. Today, we want to look at where a number of world powers were before and after the war to give a sense of just how much changed in that short period of time. Let's begin. I'm here on HI101 with Ethan Blesky. Hello. How's it going? Good. I'm really happy you could be here to, to uh, record today. I'm happy too. This is this is the night before I go back up to uh, my hometown, so I'm not sure we would have been able to do it if we didn't do it tonight. Holiday break. Holiday break. Bringing families together. Absolutely. Getting them on your podcast. <laughs> and we decided that um, we were going to talk about... I, I mean, we, we talked about a bunch of different things. Uh, we we a had a couple different bit of pretty good options one. that we can keep in the in the chamber for next time, possibly, or yeah. use it for someone else. But yeah. Yeah. So we settled on talking about World War One, And obviously, that's a ridiculous topic for this <laughs> format because you're only here for a few hours uh-huh. and this could take days. Yeah. And a lot of people are talking about World War One right now. I mean, we're right in the middle of the 100th anniversary of the war happening. Absolutely. There's a lot of really great projects that are happening in plenty of different media that are, you mm-hmm. know, looking at, you know, I've seen ones that are going through and it's like on this day in, you know, 19, oh, 1917 now, geez. Yeah. On this day in 1917, <laughs> this happened or, you know, there's there's been big, long, like 15 hour podcasts that have gone out. There's plenty of documentaries coming out. It's it's real hot news right now because, oh, my goodness, World War One happened 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. But what I find that these things don't really talk about a lot is that the war was four years long. Yeah. It was an incredibly short amount of time. And yet the amount that the world changed over the course of those four years was so significant and so paradigm shifting that it it really feels like it might have lasted decades almost when you talk about, you know, the beginning of the war versus the end of the war. And Absolutely. so I was thinking maybe what we could do is completely cut out the war itself as much as you can when you talk about this stuff. Yes. Because everyone else is talking about the battles and the, the, the campaign movements and all of these things far better than I can and, and mm-hmm. in far more depth than I can really cover here. And if, if you're interested in, in grand strategy, this isn't the place. What I'm really interested <laughs> in is, is sort of the dynamic process behind all of the political players, all the national players in, yeah. in this conflict. And, you know, obviously 
we're not going to have time to hit all of them. Mm-hmm. But I did want to make a bit of a go at it. Hit some of the bigger ones. Hit a few smaller ones, like as a group, for example, the Balkans. Yep. Do a quick round the round the block there, <laughs> see what was going on. Yeah. And just really talk about how much can change in four very short years or very long years, I suppose, yeah. um, in, in terms of just like geopolitical status, really. Yeah. Do we want to do a quick rundown of like the war, the lead up to the war, where World War One sits in history? I'm okay with skipping over the war itself. Sure. Possibly a bit of the lead up just to give context to some of the some of the stuff that we'll be talking about, like the the empires. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what, five empires fell? Yeah, something like that. Something, something like that it's 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 kind of insane yeah i i think i think people know world war one less well than they know world war two and that's also true i actually the more the more of this history stuff i do the more i feel like having world war two in our fairly recent past is a little bit detrimental to our understanding of history it eclipses some other pretty important things well not the, not just that but also world war two is a fairly simple narrative not that's just fair. Not just in terms of the course of the war, but also in terms of the moral positioning of the players in the war. Okay. Yeah. It's real easy to take the Nazis and go, these are the bad guys. Yeah. And take the allies and go, these are the good ones. Yep. And they fought and the good guys won. Hooray. Yeah. And it makes war feel really black and white and it makes it feel very... It has a narrative. So it 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 almost uh, makes us assume that other things should also have a more cohesive narrative. Yeah. Well, it, it, gives, us, it gives us this false sense that there are you know that there is a good guy and a bad guy in a war yes when in reality what war is is really just sort of the the most extreme diplomatic tool that there is yes it's exerting your political will through use of force rather than you know economic means or diplomatic means yeah and that's not always necessarily something that goes along with a moral standpoint Mm -hmm. in fact the vast majority of wars in history that has not been the case yeah. And World War One does not fall into that nice good no. bad guy narrative. And I think that kind of I don't want to say confuses people, but it certainly complicates matters to a point where it's it's not it's not a simple story. I can remember being young and after having learned about World War Two, you, you you kind of learn about World War One and like after that almost, and and you go, and who are the bad guys in that one? Yeah, the and answer I, is I used, usually like well I used that language and that's it's it's not language that you really should be using even for world war ii it's it's not good guys and bad guys it's not a it's not a movie right Mm -hmm. yeah and and the answer usually ends up being well germany kind of germany kind of why well that's complicated (laughs) so it's really what we're looking at is a is a breakdown of the political climate in europe that was set up after the french revolution and then the napoleonic wars subsequently yes there's a term in history called the long 19th century, which is basically the theory that we might as well count everything between 1789 and 1918 as like the same century because they, they're they basically the same time period. That makes sense to me. Yeah. And 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 when we go through this a little bit, you're, you're going to see a lot of that, especially as we watch all these very old empires kind of collapse around yeah. themselves, because most of the time... What we're talking about with World War One is going back to even as far as as the the first decade of the nineteenth century in terms of of pol- political arrangements, setup and old enmities and mm-hmm. 
stuff like that and, and very old treaties very very old treaties <laughs> if, if, if anything world war one is a war of of diplomatic obligation it's all about the treaties yeah because there was this theory set up after the napoleonic wars that the best way to avoid war going forward was setting up these five major spheres of influence yeah in europe one under france one mm-hmm. under britain mm-hmm. one under prussia yep one under russia yep uh and one under Austria-Hungary, or the Austrian Empire. Yes. And the idea was there's five of them, so by the time any one of them starts getting more powerful than the others, there's always four others that can take them down. Yeah. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but Spain and Italy were sort of almost separate from that, those five spheres of influence. Yeah. Well, I mean, Italy as we know it wasn't even... No, it was... A country yet. It was was a, a mishmash of papal states Mm -hmm. and uh sovereign little you know principalities and um you know we we get to a a kingdom of italy eventually later on in the 19th century but you know italy the country as we know it doesn't really exist until about 1870 yeah and that that doesn't really factor in if anything those those principalities are falling mainly under the austrian um sphere of influence Mm -hmm. and then spain was so badly ravaged by the napoleonic wars that nobody really considered them a major power in any sense oh okay an enormous portion of the napoleonic wars was fought in spain yeah um in fact most of the british campaigns were in spain and portugal yes um not uh you know we kind of think of it being uh in brussels where because that's where you know the battle battle, the of, battle waterloo of waterloo takes place and all of that but you, you have to remember that's almost a uh, an epilogue to the whole thing right like yeah. that, doesn't, that doesn't happen until after uh france is defeated uh, napoleon is exiled and then like comes back again for one last for shot second forward. round <laughs> other than the well I, I mean obviously there's the there's the eastern front there was the there was the march on on moscow mm-hmm. but you know the vast uh, majority of british uh land action was in spain um napoleon was trying to get all the way to the uh uh, you know, take all of Spain, all of Portugal yeah. to consolidate that Western uh, flank because he saw it as vulnerability, which it absolutely was. Britain was constantly landing troops on it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's that's where the majority of the fighting took place. And, you know, Spain was already at that point in time kind of a declining economic power. Yeah, They really hadn't been at their sort of 15th, 16th century level in, in quite a long time. Uh, Burned France, out. Yeah, France France in the 18th and 19th centuries is by far the most powerful political entity on the European continent. On the continent itself, yeah. But what you get by the end of the 19th century is, you know, Prussia consolidates itself and takes all of these other German states and becomes Germany as we think of it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. A whole episode about the 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 consolidation of Germany plus with the industrial revolution, they were probably the most industrialized within the continent itself oh it made them incredibly wealthy it made them incredibly powerful militarily it gave them a very large population to draw on yep the industrial revolution came with a huge boost in uh in in people Mm -hmm. well that that and incorporating all those little principalities into an area where prussia was before kind of closer to the size of well it was smaller than france but you know when it becomes germany all of a sudden it's got a larger population yeah just through consolidation um and France was concerned because one of the wars that brought uh, German um, unification about was the Franco-Prussian War. Yes. 1870 to 1871, in which Prussia defeats France, yeah. marches on Paris, takes it, and declares itself a unified nation in the halls of Versailles. Yeah. Which is 
awesome by the way it's 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 pretty awesome <laughs> man that that was like the i think it was the second episode i ever did and it's still one of my favorites just because it has such a strong oh yeah clear narrative it's 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 a fantastic story <laughs> france ends up kind of beaten down by this new german state and mm-hmm. all of a sudden this whole balance of of powers is kind of starting to get a little bit out of whack yeah you've got a naval race between britain and germany because you know we'll, we'll get a little bit more into the the particulars of that as we as we go forward mm-hmm. but things started getting really tense and what you start to see is this this uh conflict between the ideas of spheres of influence yep and self-determination and self-determination is this, uh, you know, newfangled liberal idea <laughs> that every nation should have its own state. It should have a right to determine its own uh, way in the world. And when you look at something as big and ponderous, for example, as the Ottoman Empire, that yeah. seems ludicrous to them. Because yeah. what are you talking about? Every nation should have its own state. We have so many nations inside our borders. Yeah. Uh, they don't get to stay on their own way. We get to say. <laughs> yeah. And and that whole system starts to kind of break down a little bit as nations start pushing for this right to be their own their own nations, their own states. The the ideas of nation and state start merging together. Mer- merging in- into one idea, yeah. What happens to trigger World War One? Well, first of all, the Balkans are in uh, the Balkans being like um Bosnia, Serbia, that sort of area yep. of the world. They are known at this point in in history as the balkan powder keg because they have (laughs) some of the strongest nationalist movements but they are also the most some of the most oppressed people yeah uh most of those states being divided between either austria hungary or the ottoman Ottoman empire Empire itself Um, and some of them including the real important one juggled back and forth a little bit yeah absolutely and what sets all of this off is that just before the war, the Austria, the Austro-Hungarian Empire had uh, annexed Bosnia yep. and were kind of eyeing Serbia next door. Yeah. And the son of the Austrian emperor, uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, yep. decides that this is a really good time to go take an open-topped car ride around the Bosnian capital <laughs> <laughs> because everyone everyone there hated him so 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 much yeah and there are all these serbian nationalists inside the the city inside sarajevo in particular a guy named gavriel princip who's a member of an organization called the black hand which is the fakest sounding organization in history sounds so fake because it's so cool <laughs> committed to killing austrians in general but austrian royalty in particular oh that's that's a gold mine and i don't want to get into the whole thing but like the day that Gabriela Princip kills Franz Ferdinand is one of the funniest. I mean, other other than the, the the murder, yeah. Other than that part is one of the funniest things I've ever heard. He failed like three times to kill him. The he, parade was rerouted. Up, didn't he fail like three times? End up going to a cafe to, to like, get a sandwich. To get a sandwich, and he, and Franz Ferdinand just sort of drives by and he goes, "Oh, hey." Pretty much, yeah. Definitely look it up. It's it's pretty good stuff. <laughs> um, he 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 jumps out and he shoots Franz Ferdinand and his wife and. This understandably sets off a an international crisis because yeah. Austria-Hungary has just lost a member of the royal family. They declare war on Serbia, who they blame for the assassination attempt. Mm-hmm. Rightly so. I mean, it, to be fair, it's it's it, it seems a little unfair that you know they're being blamed for the actions of one of their uh, citizens, maybe. Yes. But um, given the political climate, it's not surprising in any manner. And from what I remember, they weren't particularly 
apologetic about it. No, not really. They didn't feel bad. No. Russia at this point in time feels this sort of kinship with other Slavic nations. Yeah. They see them as the big Slavs and the other ones as the little Slavs, which is kind of cute. <laughs> and uh, Serbia falls into that, you know, that little Slavic category. Yeah. So they say, uh, if you mess with Serbia, like you're messing with us too. Yes. Austria-Hungary says, I don't believe you. I'm going after Serbia anyway. We just messed with Bosnia and you didn't do anything about it. So, yeah. you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, Russia goes, we're going to call your bluff. They start lining up troops on the Austrian and German borders because yeah. Germany, Germany is close with Austria at this point. There's these... Definitely politically close and... Yes. And even nationally quite close. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, ethnically. To the Austria part of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. Yeah, absolutely. Um, at least. Yeah, because there, there's there's something called the Triple Alliance, which yep. is uh, Italy, Germany, and Austria-Hungary, who have like basically outwardly declared, like, hey, we have a defensive treaty with each other. Mm -hmm. uh, if we go to war, if somebody attacks us, we are going to defend one another. Mm -hmm. And that's fine, because France has put together what's known as the Triple Entente, yep. which is France, uh, Britain, and Russia. Yeah. So Russia's lined up on the Austrian border, but also kind of on the German border because they're pretty sure that if they attack Austria, Germany's going to come to their aid. Yeah. They're also a little worried about Italy, but not that worried. Yeah. Germany sees all of this happening, decides that, you know what, we're real concerned about this whole enemies on both sides of us thing. Yeah. And to deal with the Russian threat, we are going to attack France first because we don't think that they see it coming. And we don't want to end up in a two-front war because then it basically takes double the troops to fight a two-front war. I love that their solution against a two-front war mm -hmm. is to start a two-front war. Well, I mean, they... they, they, they uh, their were, idea was, I mean, of course, to, to defeat France so quickly that it was barely an issue. Right, through what's known as the Schlieffen Plan, which yeah. was this, this plan to attack as quickly as possible through Belgium. Poor little Belgium has been the, the, the battleground for europe for so 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 long I, I mean it's easy to go poor belgium and they've they've had their issues in the <laughs> past uh i won't lie on that one um looking at you congo uh Ooh. yeah Leopold. Uh, anyways that doesn't mean they deserve the schlieffen plan <laughs> the uh the german army rushes through belgium mm -hmm. steamrolls the whole thing and attacks France. Uh, they're hoping to take out France as quickly as possible. And like clearly, they're not as prepared as Russia is, since Russia is actively lining up troops on the border. Yeah. Russia sees this happen. Happen. They go, okay. Well, I guess the war is on now. You know, Germany's fighting this two-front war. Austria is fighting against Serbia. Uh, Italy goes, hey, you know, since this is a defensive treaty, we're not going to get into it because you attacked first they were yeah. never that close we'll get into that a little bit later but they never really liked austria that much cop out thing is there was this treaty from 1838 yeah between britain and belgium which was also a defensive treaty and as soon as germany goes through belgium it triggers this defensive treaty and mm -hmm. britain declares war on germany yeah bringing with it its entire commonwealth because it's not the commonwealth at this point it's the british empire yeah and so that means that the moment that britain declares war on germany so does Canada, so does Australia, so does New Zealand, so does India, so does South Definitely Africa, India. just everybody. Yeah. Japan is currently not in great shape in terms of their relationship with Russia, seeing as they just fought a war with them. Yep. But they are very close with, with, uh, with Britain. Yeah. So they decide to enter the war against Germany. Yep. And now it's global it's everywhere yeah it's all of the places because what what's also being brought into play here is all of these countries uh 
colonies, especially in Africa. Mm-hmm. Oh, Ottoman Empire goes ahead and just attacks Russia right away because, you know, they control the Dardanelles, which is the strait into the Black Sea, which yeah. is where the Russian fleet is. And they figure, well, this is going to happen sooner or later. We might as well get this over uh, with. Let's just let's just jump into it. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but mm-hmm. uh, Japan also had a lot of beef with China at this point because of some of the stuff that happened when they were when in when Japan was industrializing, right? So they they took out yeah, there was a Sino-Japanese war in some 1898, yeah. I believe. I'll, I'll double check that. Um, I'm, I'm pretty certain on that that year, though. They they were not getting along well. And um, Germany actually had some colonies in China. So right. Japan basically went, we'll take care of those for you, Britain. Mm-hmm. No problem. We got this one. And just sort of seized them. And kind of just stayed there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, they did. Yeah. So... We're, we're we got into a big mess real quick and that's I'm what sorry. the treaty system does for you right like it just it's this domino effect where the assassination of one political leader and mm-hmm. and and a situation where in a less hostile uh international climate might have you know maybe meant a local you know a small yeah probably very fast local conflict yeah explodes into this this giant global conflict specifically because everyone's got all these defensive treaties mm-hmm. sorted out and those defensive treaties were put in place because they thought that nobody would ever actually dare to trigger them yeah the point of the triple entente was that they didn't think anyone would be dumb enough to go up, up against britain france and and russia the and point of the triple alliance was that nobody thought that anyone would be dumb enough to go up against austria hungary and germany and yeah. italy yeah in its own way it was almost like the nuclear idea of mutually assured destruction mutually assured destruction right? exactly that was the, the that was the whole intent behind it but instead of on on this this uh two global power scale you're talking about uh, a, a far more complicated balancing act between all of these spheres of influence within europe mm-hmm. and you know and it's, it's less destruction more decimation in its original form right yeah yeah well i mean what it really reminds me of is when you're playing a game of chess and you think that you've got it all sorted out then you know at the last moment you realize that you've got a terrible like a terrible flaw in your defenses and you're like oh no like there 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 goes my queen i thought i was good and it's just like open to like yeah just a rook it's just there yeah it's just there and there's nothing i can do yeah and that that's sort of you know once it once it's in motion once it's happening this inevitability of it but you oh. know in reality this is all this sort of carefully constructed long-standing uh sort of um legacy mm-hmm. that that just you know you, you think it's foolproof and yet there's this one major flaw in it yeah. and well i mean there was there's a lot more than one major flaw in it. there were a lot of flaws but w- when you see it start to, starting to topple you think you, you know you're sitting there thinking i thought i had this handled i thought i had this sorted out i thought we were good and you just weren't yeah so now we're into the war and and you know basically the way it plays out is that over the next four years movement basically stops on both fronts uh the the french and and german armies get entrenched basically in eastern france and, and in belgium yeah uh on the eastern front it's it's being fought in uh you know in russia you know, there's there's fronts open up all over the world in terms of the the colonial fronts. Yeah. Um. It's it's just this big massive mess, and we we we're at a weird spot in military history here, where we're really good at defending and not great at attacking, so it becomes very static. Yeah. Uh. You've got machine guns, but you're not going to have tanks for a few years. You've got artillery barrages that are 
just you know unbelievably devastating yeah but how do you use those with ground troops how do you use those with guys on your side with bolt action rifles when your accuracy isn't really that great yeah it involves a lot of shoot we'll see where it lands and then we'll adjust accordingly yeah um it's 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 a weird time in military technology it's very transitional and and it results in like yeah like not a lot of movement there's plenty of battles there are objectives taken and lost but really it ends up just being this meat grinder of 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 human lives it's a really terrible war it's 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 absolutely awful goes on for four years the allies are able to uh outmaneuver and outspend uh, Mm -hmm. the central powers we did just switch terminology here. Generally, the Allied powers, once it starts fighting, yes. uh, the Allied powers are Britain, France, Britain, France. and their allies, while the Central powers are Germany, Austria-Hungary, yeah. and their allies. Axis is a term from World Second War II. World War? Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I know. It gets very confusing. <laughs> we'll do our best to keep it straight. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll try not to, uh, to use those terms too much just because it gets yeah. murky. So... One of the most interesting facets of this four years is the number, as you mentioned, of rather ancient empires that cl- that crumble over the course of this battle. Because, yeah. you know, a lot of these a lot of these powers that are entering into these treaties are very old, yeah, and have a lot of internal problems, mm-hmm. and haven't really come to grips with the new small L liberal political climate of of europe yeah because not only have we had the french revolution we've also had the the political revolutions of 1848 where Mm -hmm. you know things like individual rights and suffrage and uh political representation are you know all these crazy new ideas are being tried out all over europe and liberals and it's and it's difficult to deal with for some of these powers right possibly none more so than austria-hungary so i think that's probably a really good place to start especially because that's kind of the starting point of the war absolutely um, what a weird empire. Yeah, a lot of people don't know a whole lot about it, and I find that I was never really taught it all that well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I did eventually at, like, upper year yeah. courses, but a lot of times it's just kind of brushed off as being just like, it's a thing that happened, don't worry about it. <laughs> well, why are Austria-Hungary the same country? Well, they're not, but they are, but don't worry about it. They were just... They, they... were, and then they weren't, but they also were? <laughs> um, yeah, it was born of this weird historical relationship between Hungary and Austria due to uh, the Habsburg dynasty. Yeah. Several centuries before what we're talking, like in the 16th century, mm-hmm. Hungary was defeated by um, a Habsburg Holy Roman Emperor yep. and were ruled as as a vassal state. But the thing is, it wasn't actually brought into the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, Empire. Okay. Um, it was ruled as, it own, as its own sort of separate political entity. And so the Habsburgs were... Like each each Habsburg monarch that comes along was both emperor of the Holy Roman Empire and king of Hungary. Yeah, it's sort of how it's sort of like how when Scotland first enters the UK, uh, you have uh, what is it James the first and the fifth or whatever. Uh, six and one. Six and one. Thank you. Uh, because because he's the sixth of one country and first he's of the, the other. He's the sixth of Scotland and the first of England. Yeah. 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 You get kind of the same sort of arrangement yeah. where sometimes you're just king of more than one place and it's a little awkward but everyone deals with it. Yeah. And I mean. It's not as though the Hungarians were just fine with this. There was significant political <laughs> tension for throughout the years. Uh, in 1848, they actually tried uh, a revolution for uh, for independence, and yeah. it failed, kind of bringing martial law down on on Hungary. It was it was entirely locked down by by Austria, who at this point um, was still ruled by the Habsburgs, but it was no longer the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire was dissolved during the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah. Uh, and it, and in 1804, the Austrian Empire was founded by the 
old Holy Roman Emperor. By, by the vestiges of it. He basically retreated back to Austria because yeah. Napoleon took all of his other stuff. <laughs> uh, he, took, he took his ball and he went home. Yeah. But in 1866, Prussia defeated Austria in another one of those three wars that I was talking about leading to yep. German independence. And Austria was doing really badly after that defeat. I mean, there's there's questions of political legitimacy. There's yep. questions of economic stability. There's all sorts of problems there. And the only way that they could really maintain control over that region was basically to turn to the ethnic Hungarians, the Magyars, yeah. and extend them some political considerations and basically say, okay, well, here's what we're going to propose. There's going to be an Austria. There's going to be a Hungary. The emperor, Franz Joseph, yeah. is going to still be emperor of Austria and king of Hungary. And in most things, they're going to be politically separate, at least for internal affairs. There's going to be two separate yeah. uh, uh, parliaments. They're going to be two separate sets of laws. And they're going to have kind of their own regions within uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Yeah. However, for any matters of foreign policy, they're effectively going to be one country. So yeah. anything to do with uh, treaty negotiations, anything to do with the military, there's yeah. one shared military between Austria yep. and Hungary. And it's this weird sort of dinosaur of a political arrangement. Like it's uh -huh. very, very odd. But And then they, they grew in power slightly and started annexing other countries and had multiple ethnicities underneath them as well. That's, well. that's the thing. They always had multiple ethnicities underneath them. The the Kingdom of Hungary had always been a multi-ethnic yeah. uh, country, and they had always kind of had difficulty dealing with that to some extent. Yeah. And one of the reasons that the Magyars agreed to this arrangement was that it effectively raised the Hungarian status to mm -hmm. uh, more or less equal with German status yeah. um, in this political body. But it still leaves behind the Romanians, the yeah. Slavs, the any Jewish populations. Yeah. Uh, the Poles, the, uh, who else? There there was a Romani population. Yeah. Uh, like, there. if you look at ethnic maps, which is a thing that you can find of yeah. the Austro-Hungarian Empire, it is... I've looked, and it's it's a hodgepodge. It is many-colored. It's... Uh, it's... it's the, the legend is very long. It's it's incredible. Like, Austrian were the majority, but, but the minorities out... If you compared all of the minorities, they vastly outnumbered the austrian yeah. majority absolutely like just by a little bit and i mean technically they were supposed to have all the same rights as germans and mm -hmm. magyars but of course that's not how things like this work no one of the difficulties of running a representative government in a multi-ethnic empire yeah is that sometimes when you're the dominant ethnicity you don't really want other <laughs> ethnicities to have the same rep uh, representation as you because they might want different things than you yep uh like equality and other tr <laughs> such troublesome issue uh, uh you know demands yeah um man talking about 19th century politics is real awkward <laughs> <laughs> um and, and and that's really what was happening here was the was you know the the magyars were living large over the slavs and the and all, all of these other ethnicities mm -hmm. and they were fine with this with this uh with this arrangement the germans were never really that much in in jeopardy as you mentioned they were always yeah. going to be kind of the um the largest population mm -hmm. um if you count population by population but you know there's there's really a, an issue of oppression of uh ethnic minorities in mm -hmm. austria hungary which it was happening in many of these empires we'll, we'll see this story over and over again as we go through but 
really the biggest challenge to Austria-Hungary wasn't any sort of uh, outside pressure. It was it was internal rebellion. They they had so yeah. much uh, they have they had so many issues with these uh, minority populations who were looking for some sort of representation because they're you know this is the 19th century, this is the early 20th century. We're being told that each nation should have a voice, each person should have representation. Yeah, things like universal suffrage are coming up. Uh, mm-hmm. Things like actual real universal suffrage are starting to show up in places <laughs> that are letting women vote. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're seeing this around the world and going, well, th- you know, this sucks. <laughs> and really, that's sometimes that's all it takes to start a revolution. Yeah. It, it sounds reductionist, but, <laughs> you know, that's that's the kind of thing it takes. But, you know, the, 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 the Austro-Hungarian Empire includes Transylvania, Moravia. Yeah. Uh, they, they annexed Bosnia just mm-hmm. before the war, as we talked about. They had their eyes on Serbia. Uh, it's it's just this massive group and 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 all of them want just their own land they don't want to be subject to this austrian monarch mm-hmm. and this is seen as a big problem for austrian leadership yeah but it's it's seen as bothersome for them it's troublesome it's a it's a it's an internal problem mm-hmm. needed you know we, we will deal with it ourselves uh and then they invade serbia after the assassination and then the war happens Let's fast forward our four years. <laughs> Need like a sound effect or something. <laughs> We're going to use this a couple of times. Hard four years of fighting. Yeah. Real hard four years of fighting because they're not only fighting Russia, which, by the way, just as a rule of thumb, don't fight Russia. Don't, don't do it. Russia does really badly in wars. They, they take wars really hard. They take a lot of casualties, a lot of deaths. But there's so many of them, and they're so tenacious that you don't want to mm-hmm. try and ride that ride out. Nope. It's not worth it. Um, they're also fighting the Italians who, you know, surprise, decided not to join up with Germany and Austria-Hungary after all. Yeah. So that makes for two fronts. Yep. There is an allied presence in the Balkans supporting Serbia. Yeah, um, that's one of the allies that people tend to forget about. Is yeah, Serbia, Serbia was an ally with Britain and France and the rest of them. Yeah, uh, they were one of the first uh, belligerents in this whole war. Mm-hmm. Uh, they got, they did get support. Yeah, maybe not as much as they could have, but they got support. And so they're being hammered on like three sides by allied forces. Ottomans as well, right? No, the Ottomans were uh, allied with the Austro-Hungarians. Oh, sorry, that's okay. It's oh it's it's that's that's the other thing about this this treaty system is that as soon as war breaks out half of them flip flop, yeah, know, up until you know up until summer of nineteen fourteen, Italy is one of Austria's closest allies at least on paper. Right, and there's and a lot Ottomans, of tensions. Ottomans were kind of against the Austrians before the war. Yeah, more like they were fighting proxy wars. They yeah. were they were kind of wrestling over the same scraps. Yeah, as it were. We're going to call the Balkan scraps, which I feel really terrible about now in retrospect. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, 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 they, they, they lost a lot of people, but it wasn't even really the war effort that, that did them in, like not the actual fighting itself. There were a few major problems about how Austria-Hungary went through the war. Number one, they essentially turned their command over to Germany yep. and said, hey, let's try and coordinate this. And Germany went, great, we'll use you for all the grunt work that we don't want to do. Yeah. Um, which had two effects number one they were thrown into the you know the hardest battles yeah and number two there were a lot of times where they were standing around waiting for orders from berlin yeah which is not a place you want to be in uh you know this new 
at least in the early stages, relatively mobile type of warfare. Yeah. Um, even though people are entrenched, things are moving fast. Yeah. You know, think like events are moving quickly. Yeah. Um, you want to be able to react as quickly as possible. You mm-hmm. have telegraphs, you have, you know, uh, long distance communications for the first time, really, yeah. in warfare, at least in a large war. It's making a difference on how quickly you can react when the enemy moves. Oh, yeah. Also, you have this little issue of all of those little ethnicities that we were talking about are all revolting the entire war. <laughs> that kind of destabilization means that the army who was previously preoccupied with keeping down these internal revolts mm-hmm. was kind of busy fighting a war. Yeah. Uh, which means that they weren't available to quell these internal revolts. Yeah. Which means that all of a sudden you have, you know, all of these groups who are agitating both against the political machine yeah. and against the war effort, like making it harder to actually conduct a war. Was there a lot of internal sabotage within the Austro-Hungarian uh, military itself? Because the I, I know it was made up of a lot of those different ethnicities. There, there definitely was the, the German ethnic majority in, mm. the, in the Austrian... Yeah, Hungarian army. Yeah, but there were other ethnicities within the army itself, um, right? You know, I'm not sure how much sabotage there was actually within the military command. It's it's difficult when you talk about things like this in ethnic terms because I mean it's not as though all Slavs felt the same way and all Germans felt the same way. Yeah. And you know, like you're going to have people who are benefiting from this power structure despite the fact that their overall ethnic group is being oppressed by the system as as a whole right? yeah so there are going to be plenty of slavs and poles and 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 other groups who are within the military structure that are just content to serve out their time there because mm-hmm. it comes with a good pension and comes with a good command and comes you know um you know but you know there are there are plenty of um there, there you also have for example hungarians who don't like the austro-hungarian arrangement they don't mm-hmm. necessarily want to be under the king anymore yeah they did just try to revolt and and move away from the Habsburgs 70 years before mm-hmm. that's not that long really so i'm certain that it happened the extent to which it happened i i, I can't really speak to yeah but for the most part that I, I wouldn't call that a make or break uh factor in the actual um military campaign oh no no i was just wondering if it was significant in any way not not that i can think of i'm okay. sure i could find a sh- uh, uh, examples of it though but yeah, all, all of this agitation, you know, doesn't doesn't help anything and really catches the national attention, especially because the war starts because of these sort of nationalistic mm-hmm. um, uh, motivations in the Balkans. And so when the war is over, when they're discussing like at, at the at the Paris conferences where they're discussing basically the, the surrender terms, mm-hmm. um, they Austria-Hungary becomes kind of a main target um, for this whole idea of uh, self-determination. Yeah. They are singled out as in, in, in the talks as being a, a prime candidate of a, a country that needs to allow self-determination to happen. Yeah. They are named by name. Uh, yeah. And, you know, when, when, when the war is over, uh, Austria is defeated a few days before um actual armistice day on on november 11th they're they're defeated around the third um and uh charles the first slash fourth uh (laughs) basically he he doesn't actually abdicate he renounces political activity which is kind of the most wishy-washy version of an abdication i've ever heard okay he tried a couple times to reinstate the the crown but he ended up dying in 1922 and that was about it yeah um 
his, his father emperor franz joseph lived till like 86 yeah uh, he was very old he, 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 when he died in uh, 1916 um so he over he, he oversaw most of the proceedings of the war mm-hmm. and really was the face of the whole austria austro-hungarian empire because he was there from its inception in 1867 yeah um it's kind of weird how that whole political body was essentially one man yeah yeah it's wild but anyways when when he abdicates or doesn't abdicate yeah. as the case may be hungary and austria become completely separate political entities as they they were before yeah and when they go to the table, they negotiate as uh, as distinct political bodies, mm-hmm. both of them in state republics, which is kind of the default for new nation states after World War One, which kind yep. of makes sense given the, you know, this is kind of the culmination of the French Revolution when you really think about it. Yeah. It, 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 we, we can always trace that line back. It's very easy to do. Yeah. But yeah, Hungary and Austria become separate republics and they lose nearly 60% of the landmass of Austria-Hungary to various other groups becoming yeah. uh, autonomous nation states. And I mean, this doesn't really go that smoothly when we're talking about the Balkans because you get countries like Czechoslovakia, which is a very artificial construct. The Czechs and the yeah. Slovaks don't really get along that well, nope. <laughs> never really wanted to be in the same country exactly. And as we know now, uh, have, have since uh, ceased to be part of the same country. They, yeah. they divide it there is no longer a Czechoslovakia. You also get, you know, Yugoslavia, you got Bosnia. Pieces were carved off and given to uh, Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, chunks were carved off and given to Poland, which at this point in time, or at the beginning of the war at least, wasn't actually a country at all. No. Uh, or hadn't been a country for some time. For quite a long time, it was divided up between that, Germany, and Russia. Correct. Um, so basically the, the the southern, about the southern quarter of yeah. of of Poland had been part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So they lost all that, chunks of Romania, you know, yeah. uh, um, all sorts of little little pieces got carved off here and there. And it was diminished significantly. In fact, it was it was a little bit questionable if, if uh, Austria was going to, con- uh, to continue as a political body at all, really, after yeah. the war. In fact, probably the only thing that saved it was that no one wanted to give more territory to Germany. Yes. And so they were quite committed to the idea of keeping an Austrian republic alive yeah. in 1918. Not a lot of reparations were leveled against them, mostly because like there wasn't really anyone to level reparations against because there was no real like who who do you who do you yeah who do you blame? There was no coherent country after to to like for that entire. Mess. Do you put it all on Austria? That's yeah. not fair. Do you, no. you know? Do you put it on just Austria and Hungary? No, but is it fair to put it on Yugoslavia, who had no part in all of this? Well, not mm-hmm. really. Well, so how, how do you, right? And and so, I mean, between the loss of landmass, which is always considered in, in reparation discussions, right? Yes. I mean, loss of landmass is a big thing. Yeah. Between the loss of landmass, the uh, political devastation, the ending of the Habsburg line yeah. um, as, a, as a political force, the ending of the, Austria, uh, the Austrian Empire or the Austro-Hungarian Empire, if you like. Yeah. You know, all of this going together with just the, the industrial devastation of the war because... That's yeah, rough on a country. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a lot left to punish. Yeah. So you know, in in a lot of ways, they lost so badly that they avoided sort of the war guilt issues that end up going into the fallout of World War One. Yeah. And you know, they don't have a great couple of decades economically. They're not terribly powerful politically. Yeah. 
and you know it's it's kind of easy to see how they fall into sort of the the well austria at least how they fall into the german orbit yeah. uh, as the uh, as the 30s come to a close yeah hungary at least has a bit of a stronger national uh, sense of self yeah the hungarian or the, the kingdom of hungary had been around for 900 years i mean yeah there was kind of always going to be a hungary no matter what form hungary existed in and so an independent hungarian republic suited hungary just fine yeah um and and they seem to do okay but you know that's it's a lot of change again yeah. four years i'm gonna keep saying four years over and over <laughs> and over again but four years yeah that's crazy i think that's probably good for austria hung uh, austria hungary unless you have any questions about them no not really we might as well keep trucking along because we have a lot of more uh, we have a lot more em- uh, empires to empires talk to, to kill <laughs> oh yeah so why don't we take a quick break before we get uh, get on to the next ones yeah. and we'll be right back okay we're back on hi 101 here with ethan blesky hello and we just talked about the living dinosaur that was the austro-hungarian empire that that big old mess you know if there was anything you know as 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 ancient and as byzantine and <laughs> as i would have said that the ottomans are more byzantine we are about to talk about the ottomans i the history puns <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's the ottoman empire it's this weird weird place that in a lot of ways looking at what happens to it in world war one explains so much of our world now yep so much um <laughs> and i mean especially this past year it's become incredibly timely <laughs> yeah um looking at the looking at the conflicts in uh, in syria especially uh uh-huh. But yeah, the Ottoman Empire, we tend to talk about the Ottoman Empire as though it's Turkey. And it was, but it was so much more than just Turkey. Yeah. You know, it's important to remember that the Ottoman Empire starts just before, you know, at the, at the very end of the 13th century and very quickly takes over what was the Roman Empire, mm-hmm. which we, we would call the Byzantine Empire. And you and I actually did an episode on the, the fall of Constantinople yep. to the Ottomans <laughs> in 1453. But... It's almost fitting that we should end it. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I, I agree. I agree. But I mean, at its largest, the Ottoman Empire sprawls across so much mm-hmm. of Asia and Europe and Africa. Yep. It encompasses Egypt. It encompasses um, the Levant. It encompasses Arabia, yep. Iran, Iraq, Balkan states, like just this this massive swath of land. Yeah. And and. They are quite literally medieval, and there's not a yeah. lot about that that changes over their history. I mean, they they do obviously change with the times, but you know, in 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 sort of the philosophy of the makeup of the Ottoman Empire, it is it is a medieval empire. There is yeah. a sultan, mm-hmm. and he whatever lands his army controls are his lands. Yep. And yes, there are attempts at liberalization over the years. Uh, most notably, there was a a constitution placed in uh, i believe 1867 yeah you know it was subsequently you know suspended almost immediately by the sultan who was kind of like you know parliamentary democracy what is this but i mean something like the ottoman empire doesn't really survive that well into the 20th century no especially given the types of internal pressures that it's going to be under that are mm-hmm. very similar to what we talked about in austria hungary yeah. you've got all these smaller groups that are not well represented politically yep. or economically or culturally 
Yeah. Except that in the case of the Ottoman Empire, the groups that we're talking about, some of them are very, very large. And we're talking, pretty powerful. And, and very powerful, yeah. We're, we're talking about the entire, you know, what would become Saudi Arabia. We're yeah. talking about Iraq. We're talking about uh, Palestine. We're talking about Syria and mm-hmm. Jordan, Egypt. I, I mean, like, it's, 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 there, there, there's so many strong powers here. We're also talking about uh, Greece, uh, Bulgaria, you know, like, it's, the the number of countries that at some point or another fall under Ottoman control yeah. is, is massive. And mm-hmm. again, brings the same sort of challenges. How do you, in the 20th century, how do you rule politically over a group that diverse who has that much exposure to how self-determination can work in the yeah. form of the liberal democracies of Western Europe, yep. of the Americas, yeah. That's that's a really dangerous example for mm-hmm. someone like the Ottoman Empire. So, you know, directly before the war, there were major political crises uh, yeah. starting in 1908. There's this group called the Young Turks that I'm sure you've heard of. I have. There's a rebellion that goes on at this point in time that was basically an attempt to make the Ottoman Empire a constitutional democracy, or yeah. sorry, a, co- a constitutional monarchy, really. Yeah. Similar to the setup of Britain today, or, well, any any number of constitutional monarchies where the, the monarch would be essentially a figurehead. It would still be the head of state, but yeah. really the main power would come from the people, not from the monarch, through yeah. uh, a representative bicameral parliament. Were they educated in Britain a little bit like uh, the like literary elite of India were? Some of them would be. The connection with Britain wasn't quite as strong, but you are talking about... But that sort of Western education. Yeah, the leadership of the Young Turks tended to be uh, very highly educated. Very, so, yeah, 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 exactly. It was, it, was, it was very much an intellectual movement, but it was one with like really interesting like national or nationalistic thrust behind it. And, yeah, and, which, which was something we were seeing at other points in other places at this time i mean yeah india was doing the same thing and absolutely absolutely so was was china with the the boxer rebellions and Mm -hmm. stuff like that yep yep those are yeah absolutely those that's absolutely correct the interesting thing about the young turks though is that their form of nationalism was basically like hey i don't feel good about the ottoman empire and i'm turkish Mm -hmm. and i want i want an ottoman empire that i can be proud of yeah and let's make the step or let's take the steps towards that sort of society before we're forced to by all of these groups who currently hate us and we don't really blame them for hating us yeah it's it's a it's a really interesting movement and and it's worth a little bit more of a look into but you know all of this stuff is already happening you know a good uh decade before the war breaks out yeah so ottoman empire like austria hungary is going into this war already kind of not the healthiest creature yeah i forgot to mention before but it was known as the sick man of europe <laughs> i hadn't heard that one before yeah yeah um it was not doing well people could tell it wasn't doing well yeah it's it's landmass had shrunk uh you know it was losing control over various groups yeah we talked briefly before about the uh changing of of control over the balkans between the ottoman empire and and the austro-hungarian empire yeah. in 1912 to 1913 there was something known as the balkan wars yep. where montenegro greece serbia bulgaria all break away from the ottoman empire yeah in this sort of rebellion and the ottoman empire doesn't exactly let them go willingly but can't also can't, can't manage stop to stop them yeah it can't it can't stop them and i mean that that instability 
would would uh, lead to sort of the the turmoil that would allow Austria-Hungary to take Bosnia and yeah. sort of start eyeing Serbia because all of a sudden we'll hold on to this for you. Yeah, kind of. But I mean, when when you're when you're a member of a Balkan nation like that, like no wonder it was considered such a volatile place. Like, what are your what are your options? Be a, yeah. a minority oppressed in the Ottoman Empire or be a minority oppressed in the Austro-Hungarian Empire? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People were mad. <laughs> of course, they're mad. Why wouldn't they be? <laughs> you know, the, the the Ottoman Empire was always a bit of an outsider in terms of European politics, mainly because of its religious makeup. Yeah. I mean, there were Muslims in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, especially yeah. in, in some of those Balkan uh, nations. Yeah. But, you know, the Ottoman Empire was predominantly Muslim, which, yeah. you know, yeah, even into the 20th century, well, even today, makes you not quite european even if you are technically in europe yeah just in terms of geopolitical attitudes yeah and and the ottoman empire wasn't immune to that despite its power yeah in fact if anything it kind of gave it a bit of a chip on its shoulder makes Um, sense (laughs) oh of course it makes sense absolutely but you know it supported austria austria hungary largely because it saw itself in austria hungary and you know vice versa yeah yeah they traded border territories but it was not ever an issue of austria-hungary versus the ottoman empire okay really okay it was serbia would break away from one and the other would scoop it up (laughs) yeah terrible place to be but when 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 the war breaks out the ottoman empire also borders on russia and had its border skirmishes with with russia yeah but was a lot less friendly with russia about it yeah i'm not gonna call them friendly with austria-hungary that was a that was an alliance of necessity that was a you know that was realpolitik at play they did not like Russia. Yeah. It did not work out for them well on those borders. And as we discussed really briefly in the intro, most of the Russian fleets were in the Crimea. Yeah. Which is in the Black Sea, which borders you need to with sail through the Dardanelles, which yeah. is in the Ottoman Empire to get into the Mediterranean. Yeah. That strait has always been highly important strategically yeah. for thousands of years. The Ottomans knew what they were holding there. And so they kind of knew that the Russians were going to be coming for them and and kind of drew up alliances accordingly when the war broke out. Yeah. There's sort of this idea of them going into the war with an air of resignation almost. Like, well, this is a war happening and it's going to happen to us, so we might as well get on it. Yeah. That's not entirely fair. I mean, it's not as much as they had a reputation of being kind of, uh, well, the sick man of Europe. It wasn't as though they weren't a power to be reckoned with. Yeah. You know, the, the, the military was massive. It yeah. was it was it was incredibely formidable. And and the their you know, it wasn't just numbers, they were also well known as, as highly skilled fighters. Yeah. Um and for a good chunk of the war, they actually did quite well. Um mm-hmm. you know, we, we said we wouldn't get into battles too much, but when you look at Gallipoli and the defensive campaign um put on by the ottoman empire there yeah um you know managing to fight off the british navy and you know the 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 anzac landing forces australia and new zealand yeah. uh, army corps as well as uh, the dominion of newfoundland which we'll talk about later uh, the but, dominion uh, of newfoundland you know they 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 were a force to be reckoned with they were you know they weren't giving up easily and yeah. and they fought they fought the uh, the vast majority of the war, they, they they really held their own throughout. Yeah. Until you get to 1916. And this is kind of where we get to the the after part. 
1916, there is an Arab rebellion. Yeah. Basically, the entire Arabian Peninsula goes, nope, we're not in for this anymore. They yeah. write a little letter. Under you... the leadership of one family, correct? I think so. I This is one of those things that I'm... I'm I, I don't always love putting in. I need to put in, but I don't really know well enough to speak authoritatively on all of the details. Okay. Um. You're you're, you're right. It is it is generally one family that that guided a lot of that. I'm not sure if it's the Saudi family or not. Uh. I, from from what I can remember from my class, it was. It it, it may well be. I mean, the the father was the king of one of the major countries and gave two of the other countries to two of his sons right it, it could be the saudis then i i can't remember i'll, I'll look that up though and i'll pop it in the notes yep, absolutely. um but in any case they basically write a letter dear britain we've had it with these ottomans yeah help please yeah and the the, the british are happy to help yeah uh they send a, a fairly sizable force to support the popular arab campaign against the ottoman empire yeah and i mean this is where you get the relationships that start between Britain and Iraq, between yeah. France and Lebanon, yeah. between, you know, and all of these, all of these Middle Eastern countries that we think of now as, as being trouble spots. Yeah. Um, one by one rebel against the Ottoman Empire and the Ottoman Empire is going like, wait, wait, no, 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 come back. Yeah. And it's not happening. You know, Egypt's split away. The, the yeah. British are more or less in control of the Suez Canal. It, like, it's it's it all falls apart for them <laughs> and it was really devastating for them they they lost most of their arabic landmass out of mm -hmm. that deal um or most of their asian landmass i should say and that basically took them out of the war they were so tied up between you know between russia and then their their rebellions that they were dealing with that they they didn't really um have a lot to contribute after 1916 yeah now you know, unfortunately, the promises made by the British to the, the Arab freedom fighters were often not kept in the peace yeah. treaties that were that were uh, or that took place afterwards. Most of those countries ended up being protectorates of either Britain or France. Yeah, there's a there's an ugly racial undertone to the, the fallout of of the First World War, where non-white countries are often not trusted to look after their own affairs yep. when uh, when things are split up. And it's uh, yeah, it's it's distasteful, but it is what it is. And it needs to be acknowledged. And yeah what it results in is some very arbitrary borders being drawn, especially in the Middle East that, you know, to this day cause problems where in the Balkans, they're being or trying to be very careful about self-determination for certain ethnic groups yeah. in the Middle East. They almost don't seem to care at all. And all of a sudden yeah. half the Kurds end up on one side of the line and half of them on the other side of the line. And, Ugh. you know, 80 years later you get the Gulf war. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's just ugly stuff like that comes out of it. And, yeah. and we're, we're, we're still dealing with it today, as I said earlier. But as for the, the Ottoman Empire itself, I mean, they, they lost three million soldiers, or so, so soldiers and uh, civilians in yeah. the fighting. Like, the First World War, the casualty rates are just staggering. That's, that's killed. Three million killed. And this is kind of, you know, this is kind of worrying. Uh, between 400 and 700,000 wounded. Usually the wounded number is a lot bigger than the killed number. Yeah. It's a little weird. I'm not entirely sure what the what the reason for that is, but yeah, that that kind of icky uh, face that you're making right now, that's kind of how I felt when I found that out. Uh, yeah. And I mean, this is out of a population at the beginning of the war of 21.3 million. 
oh, 3 million Ouch. out of 21.3. This war, I, I feel like there's no way to talk about the numbers in a way that you can really grasp in no. your head. Like, it's too big. It's too big. It's too awful. Yeah. And the way that it tends to be overshadowed by World War II sometimes when we talk about the world the world wars mm-hmm. um, makes it feel like, oh, maybe it's not so bad. No, that's not true at all. It's really, really, really bad everywhere. Yeah. When the Ottoman Empire is falling apart at the end of the war, the, the sultan abdicates. He's forced to abdicate by, yeah. by revolting forces. Mehmed VI, uh, he was the direct patrilineal descendant of the very first sultan of the Ottoman Empire. That's incredible. Osman I, who died in 1323. Uh, unparalleled in European history. Yeah. Son to son to son to son. There was no point where it went to a second son or to a brother or yeah. to a cousin or to an uncle. Yeah. Son to son. That's incredible. Hundreds of years. And he was the last one and he he had to he had to abdicate. I think I, I was trying to figure out if there was a longer patrilineal line that you could trace. And in power, I couldn't really find much. Yeah. I think there's a good case to be made for Confucius. Oh. There seems to be because of ancestor worship, they do a pretty good job of, of keeping track of things yeah. like that. His one of his descendants was like in a cabinet position in the Chinese government up until at least early this year. I don't know if he still has it. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. It's over 2000 years, man. But anyways, that's way off track. You also have Greek independence out of all of this. Yeah. Uh, Greece becomes an independent country in 1922. That was, you know, that, that was really hard fought for by, by the allies at the table at the Paris treaties because you know, Greece has a special place in Western history. Yeah. yeah people don't want to see a subjugated Greece, really. No. Um, unless you're Ottoman, I suppose. Then it was kind of just part of your territory and you didn't see what the big deal was. But we are the history of the Greeks. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I, that's an absolutely valid point. That's very, very true. I don't think we can talk about this without talking about the Armenian genocide. Um, okay. Sorry, man. Didn't mean to get so real, but we got to talk about yeah. it a little bit. Armenia was on the, you know, sort of the, the very edge of, of uh, Ottoman territory. And basically what happened was they were identified as a particularly volatile group. They were troublesome. They were troublesome and they were worried that in war times they were going to use such a tumultuous time as an opportunity to rise up against the Ottoman leadership, which was probably well-founded. Yeah. You know, they probably would have risen up given the chance um so basically what happened was the ottoman leadership rounded up the armenian leadership had them all tried and executed mm-hmm. and then basically what they would call forcibly relocated the armenian population from what we would know now as armenia yeah. uh, to syria and they uh did this through the use of death marches which is basically don't give them food make them walk all the way to syria oh good about 1.5 million civilians were killed this way. Wow. Yes. This is why it's important to talk about the Armenian genocide. Yeah. The word genocide was coined by people studying this event. The word genocide didn't exist until 1943 yeah. when it was used to refer to, describe to this, this event. exact event. Wow. And it's really, really touchy in international politics right now. There's only about 26 countries that acknowledge it as a genocide. Really? Canada is one of them. I'm very proud of that fact. It's really important to acknowledge that this happened. The Turkish government does not like the use of the word genocide. They will use basically any other word to describe it. Part of their argument against 
what they see as way too much fuss over something that happened over 100 years ago is that it happened under the Ottoman Empire and this is not the Ottoman Empire anymore. Yeah. They look at this as a continuity issue. And why should they have to acknowledge the wrongdoings of a government that functionally they helped to overthrow in 1922 under the yeah. Turkish rebellion yeah. um, or sorry, the, the Turkish revolution when, when the new Turkish Republic was founded under Ataturk. Yeah. They didn't like that government either. They got rid of it. Yeah. Why should they have to pay for what it did? Yeah. So it's a like, it's a little more nuanced maybe than it's sometimes portrayed as in yeah. the, in the media. But the fact is nothing's really been done for the, the, the families of the people that this happened yeah. to. And and um, that's that's really what this sort of international international recognition is is looking to accomplish, mm-hmm. not to punish the Turkish government, the current Turkish government, in any way for it. Yeah. But that it's really important to acknowledge when these things happen mm-hmm. as a lesson to everyone moving forward. Yeah. You don't just kill 1.5 million people and brush it off like it's no big deal. No. If anything, there are far more places in our history where we need to collectively own up to things and it's it's a touchy thing because you don't want to assign blame or assign guilt but that's not the same thing as recognition and walking that line is really really tricky yes that being said i will never not refer to it as a genocide because that's exactly what it was armenians were targeted specifically for being armenian yeah and marched into the syrian desert to die this is what comes this is the ugly side of these multi-ethnic multinational empires yeah that crumbled over world war one sometimes they result they, they resorted to the most brutal methods of subjugation to keep those empires together yeah that's not something that a healthy political body does no not by any means so yeah by 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 1918 there is no more sultanate you know this is a post that's gone or this is an office that's gone back hundreds and hundreds of years yeah the ottoman empire is less than half of its former size Turkey is well on its way to becoming an empire or to, uh, to becoming a, a republic, yeah. which uh, would be completed in 1922. And this is really kind of the beginning of the modern Turkey that we would know today. Yeah. But yeah, again, four years, four years, these things happened. Amazing. What it's just, just the social change that comes out of this war is, is unbelievable. I guess the, I guess the next very unhealthy empire to talk about would be Russia then, huh? I guess so. I think, we can spend a little less time on it just because I, I think the Russian revolution is fairly well yeah. known. I'd love to spend a, a you know, a, an entire episode on it at some point, but now isn't the time. <laughs> um, basically before the war, Russia was in kind of a bad spot. Russia has always been kind of slow to modernize in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I mean, they only, they only abolished serfdom like, <laughs> like 50 years before world war one. <laughs> like, they weren't doing real great. The, yeah. the, the czar was one of the most um, medieval heads of state in yeah. all of Europe at this point in time. And they were just coming off the 1904-1905 Russo-Japanese War in which uh, it was the first time a non-European power had defeated a they got European their butts power. Kicked. Hmm? They got their butts kicked. They did. It was the first time since the Mongolians that that had happened. Oof. So they had, I suppose you could call it lost face. Yep. On the international stage. Yep. And I mean, that resulted in... By, by what was seen as a fairly backwards 
society yeah we're, we're gonna talk a little more about uh, J- uh japan next time because i'm i'm the way i'm kind of breaking this this episode up is i want to put all the dinosaurs in the first one and i want to talk about the, all the new like, oh. up-and-comers in the second half cool and japan is absolutely in that second category oh at this yeah, point yeah, in time. yeah but you know russia this defeat led to an attempted uh, russian revolution in 1905 that was yeah put down but resulted in massive like constitutional changes as sort of concessions to yeah. the, the the revolutionaries and and the view was very much or fairly close to what we talked about with the young turks right they were they were like yeah look we we failed in this war we need to we need to up make ourselves better yeah we need to bring about well, a yeah, new change they're, they're, they're looking for they're looking for uh, an injection of liberal ideals into their yeah into their society and it's not just you know it starts out with workers but it's not just workers it's, no. it's also you know you get the the, the naval workers revolts mm-hmm. um so you've got military on board as soon as you've got military uh, participating in a revolt you're in big trouble yeah and it's really only through some major concessions made by nicholas ii that you know the the revolutions are quelled at all and even yeah. then no one was terribly happy with it no nicholas wasn't happy that he had to give that stuff up and the revolutionaries didn't feel like they had gotten enough yeah so you know russia was a bit of a social time bomb i yeah. suppose you could say you know the empire included numerous non-russian groups which as we've seen prior to this does not help things uh, <laughs> including the eastern half of of uh, poland um yep. as well as the uh, the baltic nations so you know estonia uh, Latvia, Lithuania. It included, you know, Belarus. It included portions of of Ukraine. Like yeah. all of these groups that are sort of, as far as the the as far as Russia is concerned, and as far as the later Soviet Union is concerned, basically Russia. Yeah. Although if you talk to anyone from these countries, definitely not the same thing. Super not Russia. Yeah, and and I mean that's that again mirrors the attitudes of you know say the germans in austria hungary versus yeah. the slavs in austria hungary yeah yeah, yeah. basically they're basically austrian no they're <laughs> not but it's it's that mismatch of, of worldviews that that yeah. is is almost more of a problem than than anything else where yeah. the oppression is certainly intentional but not always seen as being as problematic as it really is yeah you know it's it's seen as the natural order of things not necessarily uh, a denial of the self-determination of a of a group of people so after their defeat, they were they were getting a little bit concerned about sort of the, the military order of the world. Yeah. Uh, they especially saw Germany as, a, as an up and coming threat. And they had gotten into a number of conflicts with Germany over uh, various colonial territories, uh, as well as some border disputes. Okay. And there was some pretty bad blood there. Yeah. Basically, they had often been allied with Germany in the past, but Wilhelm II was a particularly acerbic individual he, he was antagonistic yeah um needlessly so yeah he, he was he was like a very spoiled child for all of his life yeah and um he ticked off nicholas the second yep he had ticked off you know a, a number of leaders actually and and they just stopped renewing treaties with germany and did, did he not undo i'm sure we'll talk about germany fairly yes. soon yes absolutely <laughs> fairly soon you know, I actually so I'll leave that that point. Yeah, yeah. I actually am going to include Germany in the second half, uh, less because of the fact that you know there there is absolutely a Second Reich ending there, and more because really modern Germany starts in 1871, and the Second Reich is is really just kind of a phase in modern Germany as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, certainly we'll 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 come around to it. Okay. 
but yeah, he he was he was needlessly antagonistic. He basically ruined everything that Otto von Bismarck had ever set up for him. That's just what I was going to say. And uh, <laughs> and, and Russia ended up looking to France basically as as a as a protection against the emerging threat. Yeah, they figured the two of them could take Germany. Let's fast forward a little bit. Four years. No, we won't make it four years. <laughs> Russia does not make it all not four this years. Time. Not this time. See, here's the thing. Russia lost like three million soldiers. They had over five million wounded. Ow. That's a tough burden to bear, especially on a on a on a society that's as number one as poor and number two yep. as poorly managed yep. as Russia. People don't like when that many people of, of their 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 countrymates die. Yeah. It, it's it's really demoralizing it's horrifically demoralizing what's more they were in the middle of a famine yeah um so cool good time to have a famine right great time um and supply trains are something russia always did really really well yeah super well they were very very good at that um <laughs> what's more the the people had really lost faith in nicholas ii as a leader he had taken yeah. over as commander-in-chief like direct command over the the russian military which he wasn't a military commander no um one of my history teachers once described him as um a man who would have made a really good manager of a hardware store oh <laughs> okay <laughs> the implication being that was about as much as he could manage yeah 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 he didn't seem to understand his people the people and uh even some of the nobles were upset with uh, the influence of Grigory Rasputin over his wife and possibly over him. Yeah. Um, leading to the murder of Grigory Rasputin. Yep. When protesters showed up at the Winter Palace to protest the war and the famine and everything else that was happening. Yeah. Uh, he had his palace guards just open fire on the crowd, Ugh. which is never a real great way of dealing with protesters. Medieval yeah absolutely absolutely and he and 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 the crazy thing about him is that he just didn't seem to understand why it would be a bad idea but but this is fine right well it'll make them go away right yeah you know like it's just it's just mind-boggling <laughs> um in 1917 we have the two russian revolutions yeah uh and people sometimes don't realize that there are two of them but yeah the first one in in, in february was the overthrow of the czar yeah and it was and really... it was a brief republic yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a parliamentary system. Um, a man named uh, Alexander Kerensky was the was the prime minister, and um, you know, I, every time I read about Kerensky, I mostly just feel bad for the guy. Oh, because, such good intentions. Well, I mean, he's 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 the leader of a parliamentary system that's been put in place by two groups who want anything but a parliamentary system. On yeah. one hand, he's trying to cater to the the royalists who want to put the czar back in power. Yeah, they want to move back to a, a monarchy yeah um even if it happens to be a constitutional monarchy of some sort they want the royal family in power yeah and on the other side you have the several communist groups that have arisen in russia yeah. that want uh, a, a pure you know platonic marxist communist society to uh, to arise out of yes yeah. and neither one of those actually wants a republic where kerensky is leading no. things and kerensky's like can we all just get along please i think if kerensky can we had vote on it yeah. let's vote on it <laughs> anytime you're the moderate in a in, in a in a situation as volatile as that yeah you're gonna have a bad time because it's gonna swing one way or the other yeah the moderates never come out ahead that's just no. the way it goes 
because no matter what you do you're too much of one or too much of the other yeah. to either side no matter what you do uh-huh. um his his main failing in in ruling russia was not ending the war that's that's really the one place where he didn't end the war and the reason that he didn't end the war was his concern over treaty obligations yeah germany and france were fighting yeah he had an obligation to germany or to sorry to france um to fight in the same war as them they had entered this war with the understanding that the the other would be involved yeah same with britain and that's that's a continuation of power kind of thing too you you look to outside powers to to validate your own yeah exactly. if you've just taken over and then you pull out of everything else the the, the are the french gonna be like well that's not the russia we signed the treaty with yeah we don't support them it's almost reasonable right it's absolutely reasonable the concern there is stability number yeah. one concern in any regime change is stability yeah it's always stability continuation of power you cling on to some things to to give you the continuation of power right? yes and given the fact that there is currently the largest war that has ever happened mm-hmm. going on and you are currently part of it yeah he decided that supporting his allies was probably a good plan mm-hmm. just a thought you know <laughs> um and so he stayed in the war which was enough to open him up to the second revolution the russian revolution of well it's it's known as the october revolution yeah actually occurred in november in november <laughs> julian calendar still being used and whatnot where a highly coordinated campaign by lenin on the platform of peace so end of the war land yep. uh yep. we're going to give peasants land to farm yep. and bread and bread and and the famine yeah. resonated heavily with the peasants. Uh, they didn't really know what communism was, but they sure wanted peace, land, and bread. But they sure know those three things. Because of this, the Bolsheviks managed to push through a vote of no confidence and then a vote to dissolve parliament, instating a, a, a new parliament. A one-party system. They were the head of. Yeah. That led to what's known as the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk in March of 1918, where Russia basically bowed out of the war the treaty is with germany saying yep. like listen we're out we're done we're, we're done mm-hmm. let's just walk away we're gonna call this a day obviously things like this don't go that smoothly yeah. um the way that the rest of the war shakes out for russia is uh the russian civil war uh 1918 yeah. to 1921 between the red russians the bolsheviks yeah and the white russians who are the uh the royalists, the royalists. it's the, the former nobility uh who are actually being supported by other allied countries after the war yeah um because they don't want a communist regime in place mm-hmm. and so they support this this war effort but are ultimately unsuccessful the reds managed to basically eradicate yeah the whites yep and uh in 1918 uh in july 16th of 1918 uh the royal family was executed by the bolsheviks yeah um the white uh, Russian forces were getting a little too close to the place that they were being held. Yeah. And we're not entirely sure whether or not it was a matter of orders from the top or if it was a decision made on the local level to yeah. execute them. But fact of the matter was that the entire family and their priest were taken down to a basement and shot. Yeah. And, and it happened. So yeah, it happened. It happened. And so that means in not four years, but three this time, we go from russian empire that's existed for hundreds of years with some you know mildly problematic internal issues to the soviet union so there's your change on that one three years three years it's wild stuff this war yeah i want to hit britain real quick before we're done yeah i feel like britain is well known uh enough that we don't have to spend a ton of time no just to give a bit of context though um you know 
this is kind of the height of the British Empire. They've got their dominions overseas, which include Canada, yep. Australia, New Zealand, mm-hmm. uh, South Africa, which are gaining sort of higher levels of, of um, autonomy at this point in time. Yeah. Uh, you know, Canada, 1867, Australia, New Zealand, 1901. Yeah. They had had some conflicts with Russia and the Crimea. They had had conflicts with France and Egypt. Yeah. They were, they were exercising a policy of naval dominance that basically dictated that they have a navy so big that it was as big as the second place and third place navies in the world yes which is unreal crazy germany decided it wanted a big navy too because that's the kind of guy wilhelm ii was yep didn't really make sense for germany to have a big navy but he wanted one he really wanted one yeah so they were in a massive naval race with germany yeah this did not help the general international tense mood that was happening in the early 20th (laughs) century um, because the question was, well, when does this end? When does this stop? Yeah. There was some question of where Britain would stand in a conflict because they had some defensive treaties with with France, but France was techn- was traditionally a, an enemy. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the you know, hundreds and hundreds of years before this, Britain and France have been at war forever. You've All got, the time. And, and I mean, the, the, most, the most recent you know, major European conflict had been the Napoleonic Wars in which yeah. they were the, the two primary enemies, really. Yeah. And so, really, the only reason that they were drawn in was that really old treaty with Belgium. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think to some extent, they couldn't just let Germany do its thing. Yeah. Was the way it was seen in, in the parliament. But people were trying to avoid war. As much as it looks like the lead up to World War One is very inevitable. Yeah. A lot of the moves that are made are with the spirit of trying not to go to war in mind. And then, you know, Schlieffen plan happens. Belgium is invaded. Britain yeah. goes to war. And... Compared to France and Germany and Russia, they were better off. I mean, the war didn't really come to the British Isles, so at least they had the home front more or less intact. Yeah. They didn't really get to use their navy. There was like, there's the one naval battle, Battle of Jutland. Yeah. And it basically proved that, yeah, Germany doesn't need a traditional navy. (laughs) (laughs) But they were all locked up in, the, the, the British navy and the German were all locked up in, in like those North Seas, right? Yeah, I mean, the they German were just Navy sort of facing really, off the whole time. German Navy couldn't really leave port, but the British Navy couldn't really leave, or else the German Navy could leave Would port. Would have gotten out of port. It's it's this concept uh, put forward by a, a, a British naval theorist and, and former uh, admiral in chief, uh, uh, Julian Corbett. It's, it's what's known as the fleet in being, which is this idea that a fleet doesn't actually have to leave port to no. have an effect, it just yes. needs to exist. Yes. Guy was, was well ahead of his time. I'm, yeah. I'm a big fan. It's. Uh, Naval history is a bit of a, a niche interest of mine, and, and he's a little bit of a personal hero. Cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the German fleet in World War One absolutely proved that the fleet in being is a very important concept. Yeah. The British had to re- resort to their, their allies to help support them navally because they were too busy just making the German fleet stay where it was. Yeah. It took their entire navy to do that. It's kind of crazy. But anyways, after the war, fast forward the four years... Uh, Britain wins. Yay. British Empire reaches its largest size ever. Hooray. You know, by landmass and by population Uh because of all these concessions that are given through the Paris treaties. Right. You know, they get all those uh, those Middle Eastern territories. They get this and that. Everything's all torn up. All of these uh, these African colonies are taken from from Germany. Yeah. Not that they had too many down there. Yeah, no, but they got some. Um, There were some, and they switched hands. I mean, even the Ottomans had some some colonies down there. So, you know, they end up with Palestine, they end up with Iraq, they end up with 
Cameroon. They end yep. up with what's known as Togoland, which is yes. now Ghana. Some of the Dominions gain some territories as well. So yeah. uh, New Guinea and Samoa to Australia and New Zealand, uh, oh, cool. respectively. Not cool. And they came to the table at Paris conferences in a, in a position of dominance. They were one of the big four. Yeah. And so, you know, they achieved all their goals in the war, really. Naval superiority. They weren't really that concerned with reparations because they didn't really have that damage, that much damage to themselves to yeah. worry about. They got really concerned, actually, about, you know, maybe we should leave Germany there as a buffer between the Soviet Union and the rest of Europe. Yeah. They didn't want to hit them too hard, actually. At from the, from at what the I heard, they, they came to the table kind of as moderates. Yeah, yeah. Trying to hold France back a little. A little bit, a little bit. And so they, they kind of bulked a little bit. Yeah. Um, which, I, I mean, history would maybe suggest that they had a more reasonable position. But their reasons for it were were based out of fears of the Soviet Union. I mean, yeah. you've, you're already seeing that Red Scare kind of yeah. uh, mentality showing up there. And they ended up with a closer alignment with the U.S. politically and economically. One of their one of their terms in the in the treaty was accepting naval parity with the United States, which was a big step okay. for a nation that four years before were saying they had to beat the second and third largest navies. Yeah, um, just as a day to day policy, this is how we protect our our sovereignty. Yeah, but they had a lot of difficulty reconciling this new policy of self determination with the British Empire. Yep, a lot of a lot of problems. Yeah. And what you start seeing are issues with uprisings in India. Yes. And issues in Ireland. Yes. And how do we deal with India versus Canada versus South Africa versus yeah. uh, Australia versus New Zealand? How do we how do we maintain this? How can we be okay with this idea of thrusting self-determination on these defeated nations yeah. while still maintaining an empire of our own. Uh-huh. And what comes out of that is the the establishment of the Commonwealth. They they did not act unilaterally there. No. It was not all No, a lot of the yeah. self determination stuff comes to the table from the United States. Yeah. In fact it's it's kind of counter to everything that the British Empire stands for. Yeah. And it's going to result in a lot of really big changes for uh, for Britain and for the Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of wanted to include it in this section more because it's like, it's not only the losing side that ended up seeing really big changes out of this. Britain's going to see a, a bunch of them too. And I kind of want to include Commonwealth nations in the in the second half, in the up-and-comer section, because that's, yeah. that's where they belong. Yeah. But this is what causes the, uh, the, the, the war with Ireland. Mm-hmm. This is what causes... You know, like there's there's massive problems that come out of this. Yeah. This is this is where uh, the the administration of Iraq goes terribly. Yeah. This is where you know they they really struggle with this idea of how do we create an independent Iraq while still trusting the people there enough to administrate yeah. an independent Iraq while still maintaining our interests in the Middle East. Which you know, surprise, there's oil there, and Britain now wants oil real bad. Yeah. They 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 struggled with it quite a bit as well. Mm-hmm. So in general, they came out of the war pretty well they didn't have the same kind of economic boom that say the united states are going to have out of it but Mm -hmm. they also weren't struggling with the utter devastation that say france or austria came out of the war with yeah i think we're starting to run a little bit long we should probably take a break here i think that it it just about covers all the dinosaurs yeah germany could have fit in one or the other but i decided to like i said earlier i decided to put in the second half oh yeah (laughs) I, i i think despite the um the very rough entire 20th century that Germany is going to have it yeah. it, uh, it deserves to be there 
So uh, why enough. don't we take a break there? And next time we'll talk a little bit less about dynasties crumbling and empires falling and more about uh, some of the shiny new nation states that come out of this conflict. Mm, republics. Yummy. <laughs> As a transitional conflict, nations modeled on the old order were predisposed to fall in the First World War. It took more effort to hold together a multi-ethnic sphere of influence than it did to run a dynamic new nation-state fueled by self-determination and liberal ideals, and the stress of war pushed a number of those over the brink. Even Britain, who won the war, was transformed by it. Next time on HI101, we'll look at those new-style nation-states and examine whether or not they handled the war any better. That episode will be up on January 15th. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.